Well, obviously, if you've been here a while, you know that I'm relatively new. Um, I actually just started on, been coming in June, but started on staff on July 1st. And since Adam is out of town and Joe went last week, I'm here this morning. So I uh, am super excited to, to share this passage with you. We are going to be taking a break from our First Timothy series, and if I'm assuming Joe didn't preach in First Timothy, I was in Baltimore, but um, we are going to take a, it's going to step back from that and let Adam continue that whenever he gets back from Yellowstone, but I am mostly excited for this passage because this is a passage in this past year has changed my life. Um, oftentimes, I superficially read the Bible, and this is one of those passages where I slowed down and, and it read me. So if you want to go and turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, that's where we're going to be spending time this morning. Since normally, yeah, we should have the verses on the screen too if you don't have a Bible with you, but since normally we kind of work just through books of the Bible verse by verse at this church, before we actually read the text and pray, I want to give us some, some framework for, for Matthew, even if you are familiar, it might be helpful for the sermon to to understand, hopefully the context of this book will help, help us understand more of what Matthew and the Lord is, is trying to show us through this. So real quick, Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. Um, a lot of people know him as the tax collector, right? So a greedy, evil man. Uh, keep in mind that he would probably have been hated by the Jews, and it's awesome that his purpose and his identity was completely changed when he met Christ. That's already a big deal. This is coming from somebody who would have been greedy, only living for themselves, yet Jesus changes them. If you read the whole book in, in one sitting, you see that, I mean, there's probably many goals, but one of the overarching goals is for Matthew to convince, convince us of one thing, to convince us that Jesus is king. He's king. He's in charge. He calls the shots, and he is Lord of everything. So to the Jewish readers, he's trying to show them that in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah king was Jesus. And to the Gentile readers, he would be trying to show them that not only is he king of Israel, he's king of the whole world. The overwhelming point, though, is this, that Jesus is king and you must follow him, you must believe in him, or you don't get his kingdom. And just to relate that to us, why we're talking about king and kingdoms, whether we know it or not, we are all following a king. We're all associating ourselves with a purpose or an identity, and this can be anything from as simple as a sports team or as sometimes as devastating as the kingdom of money. We bend our whole life towards getting more money or making sure people know we have a lot of money. But it's going to come down to this, whether we can ignore the fact that we all follow a king and we assume that because we come to church, and I love how Andrew prayed, I pray we don't let this become routine, um, or we can be honest with ourselves and realize that there are parts of our lives that show allegiance to another king. And are we going to listen to God through this text as the Holy Spirit through Matthew tries to show us that Jesus is Lord and he deserves our devotion? One more <laughs> layered introduction to make sure we get this and where we're going, because something really devastating can happen to us whenever we read familiar passages in a gospel, especially, um, especially miracle texts or some of the harder sayings of Jesus. So, so two things to watch out for. I think this is how the enemy really works on us whenever we're about to hear the word preached from these types of texts in particular. Number one, whenever we see or hear sayings of Jesus that might make us uncomfortable, it's easy for us to kind of slide into, 
using grace as an excuse not to change. And this is big for my life. I hear something that Jesus says, and I'm like, okay, these are the demands of discipleship, and, and I'm like, okay, yeah, but by grace through faith, it's nothing that I'm doing. And while that is true, grace is never an excuse to not change. If it's the grace of God, he's going to be molding you to look more like the demands of discipleship that he proclaims to us. And number two, what to watch out for is whenever you hear about a miracle of Jesus, it's easy to let your brain wander back to maybe Sunday school and, you know, I've just kind of heard this before, rather than being in awe of the miracle maker, not necessarily just be excited that Jesus fed 5,000, but to worship the one who did that. So, um, if you're familiar at all with this church, you know that we're all about making disciples, and that comes from Matthew, this book. The last Really, the main thrust of the book is that all authority has been given to Jesus, and because of that, he tells us to go. So I think that's what it comes down to, the theme of Matthew. Jesus is in charge, and what he says is to go. So with that being said, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into our, into our text. Father, I just pray right now for our church family that we would, man, just as Andrew said, we would not let this be routine, that we would not just listen to another sermon and sing more songs, but that you would change eternity today. Maybe some of us in here that don't know you, that you would woo them to yourself, that they would see that you command them to believe in you, and you command them to repent of sins so they might know you as Savior, Lord. But for those of us that already follow you, I pray that you would change us, that you would reveal to us allegiances in our heart that are not of you. So Father, toward that end, we pray, we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, let's look at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Real quick thing we notice already about Jesus. He's not necessarily interested in getting a fan club, right? He, he sees the crowd, and when he sees the crowd, doesn't think, all right, this is a great opportunity to really present my message and then, and then send them. He, he sees the crowd. He's more interested in committed hearts rather than a bunch of half-committed crowds, right? And right off the bat, we see that he gives orders. I want the authority, king, lord, to kind of resonate with us today because he sees the crowd and he gives orders to go to the other side. Then we see our first interaction with him. It's a scribe. He comes up and he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. Now, that seems like a good thing, right? I mean, you call Jesus teacher, which he is, and then you tell him you're going to follow him wherever you go. And while that's good, we're going to see from the next couple verses, Jesus' answer to this reveals something in this guy's heart, which, which goes to show already. It's not necessarily what you do or what you say, but it's where your heart is with the demands of discipleship that Jesus has for us. Now, a scribe would have been an expert on the law. He would have known the Old Testament really, really well and probably would have thought of himself as an expert on the law just like Jesus claimed to be. So, you know, he's coming up kind of teacher to teacher. I'll follow you wherever you go. It seems like you're probably going to need some more experts on your team, some more people that have their stuff together because scribes live comfortable lives. They, they, they taught the law, and they were, or in the Jewish community at least, the, the people loved listening to them. And something interesting about teacher, if you look through Matthew, there's five times where a disciple or a potential disciple comes up to Jesus and calls, calls him teacher, and all five times they leave not following him. 
Just find that interesting because it shows us that it's not enough to just like what Jesus is talking about or even just to say you follow him because you like what he is about. And I want you to already see that Jesus is clearly after more than some fancy scribe or some fancy smart person to join his team because he sees right through the heart. And in this next verse, we're going to see that the first kind of kingdom clash here. We get the kingdom of God, and then we're going to have the kingdom of comfort and self-love, which we wouldn't be able to see based on just what the scribe is saying, but if you look at the answer of Jesus, it'll make more sense. So look at verse 20. Remember, we have a guy coming up. He's a scribe. He's you know, knows the law, says he's an expert like Jesus, and he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. So it seems like Jesus could say, oh, this is great. I need more experts on my team. If I'm going to get my message out, then I'm going to need people that know what they're talking about. But instead, Jesus just says, I love how sometimes it doesn't make sense, but you got to dig in. But Jesus just says to this man, foxes have holes (laughs) and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, we can either think that Jesus potentially didn't listen to what the guy said and that he's just responding in a way that doesn't make any sense, or we can know that Jesus saw something in this guy's statement that reveals his heart. And I think if we look at his interaction, we can see something that, at least at, the, at minimum, we can assume this guy didn't want to be homeless, right? I mean, he, he says, I'll follow you wherever you go, and Jesus is almost like, are you sure about that? Boxes have holes, And birds have nests, but I'm the son of man, and I have nowhere to lay my head. Right? Jesus loves exposing our hearts with statements that do not make sense or with questions that check our own motives. Clearly, this guy coming to Jesus, it kind of looked like it was all about him. It's fair to ask us as a church family that are we the the people who follow Jesus because it makes us feel good and popular? And I, I fall into this now, even getting excited about the MCF building. You know, it's like, I'm really excited to have our own building and, and be the church that's, you know, used to be a coffee shop. It's kind of cool, right? And we, we kind of have this idea where we can gain momentum by getting other people that already have their lives together. Or maybe just you personally, you're coming in to the kingdom of God, or maybe just you're already in the kingdom, but your heart is showing that sometimes you just kind of like the movement, or you just kind of like what Jesus is all about, rather than submitting to him personally? Or are we just the people who want to follow Jesus because of what the church can give us? Or are we only following Jesus enough to get the blessing while stopping short of the parts that make us uncomfortable? And even though we can say that, we can all right now in unison say, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. But looking at our life, it's going to reveal what our hearts truly are like. And and this is just me personally. Sometimes I think that if I just go work a job, make sure the bills are paid, and then be relatively nice to the people I interact with, I do my prayers at night, and I think that's a good day for the kingdom. And while that's not necessarily bad, I don't know that it's a life completely submitted to the Lord. Like, do do we fall into that sometimes? Maybe it's just me. But it's like we feel like just kind of completing a good life and having it together is kind of what... Jesus is looking for. And this is especially dangerous for my job now. So many times I can think that just because I made some spreadsheet or wrote out some document and even canceled on a few people who might have needed to talk and I've kind of completed my ministry tasks for the day, I think that I've done the Lord's work. And 
I'm not saying those things are bad, but I'm saying it could reveal something in your heart that you're afraid of the uncomfortable things. This type of life, if this is really what this teacher is going through, he would have been messed up by this statement. Probably a little confused at first by the foxes and holes, but then he would have realized that Jesus doesn't say, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the teacher you talk about is nowhere to lay his head. He calls himself the son of man. And like this scribe would know the Old Testament, son of man would have reminded him, especially of the prophet Daniel, when every time the son of man is prophesied, we see three things. Number one, a humble servant who came for sinners, a suffering servant who would come to die and rise again, and number three, and important for our theme, is the king who would judge all the earth and destroy all evil. Does the weight of the Son of Man make us uncomfortable, right? We don't just worship a teacher. We worship the Son of Man. It's interesting that Jesus loves identifying himself as that. He could have said teacher and it'd be true, but he, this man needed to learn something. So keep asking ourselves questions. Do we wring our life out for sinners? Do we die to ourselves daily? Do we live like we know that Jesus is judge and join him in killing our own sin? Or do we love our comfort and self that we're willing to kind of Christianize our life so that it's really all about us? I don't say this because I've seen that this in the people in this room. I say it because this is me sometimes. I'm so content with Jesus being a kind of a shadow over my life rather than turning and, and, and knowing him and letting that overflow and making people matter. It's so easy for us to do that. So next time we see birds flying, or maybe even better, birds in a nest, I want us to remember that our Savior, the Son of Man, came here to die. Came here to die for people. And yeah, he likes that we do things to make sure our life looks good. I'm sure he likes that we pay bills. But do we know that he came to die for people? This guy didn't understand what following Jesus meant. He was just a teacher that taught cool things. Jesus destroys the kingdom of self-love and, and pride in us. Look at 21. Another guy comes up after he's removed himself from the crowd. A guy comes up and Jesus says, no, I don't, I'm not going to have a place to lay my head. Another guy is up and he says, Lord, a little better than teacher, I suppose, let me first go and bury my father. Now, something interesting here. Most likely, the father hadn't just died, and then this guy was out following Jesus. If, you know, based on people way smarter than me that I've read in commentaries, I have seen that it's Jewish tradition where if your father dies, you spend that day getting the funeral ready. You wouldn't have, you know, been like, oh, I'm sorry my father died, and then you would have left to go follow this questionable, now homeless um, Messiah King, right? So this is interesting. He's saying while his father is alive, he's saying, Lord, before I follow, let me go and bury my father. Seems like this request was from a man who wanted to make sure he stayed with his father and probably received his inheritance before he died. Once again, if the father was already dead, he would have already been getting ready for the funeral. This man... Also, kind of based on Jesus' interaction, we'll see in 22, this man wanted to fulfill his own dreams in life before following Jesus as an afterthought. Or plainly, he just loved money more than the kingdom. Jesus responds in verse 22. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Seems harsh, right? And like, 
the word is living and active, so he's saying that to us right now, that if there's any, let me go first and bury my father in us, Jesus is saying, let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, let the world take care of what the world is concerned about. Money, power, and it leaves us with a choice. Are we going to care more about God's kingdom or, or building our own little kingdom? I mean, this was, this was me all through college. I had this weird sense that I, I wasn't going to really serve the Lord in my fullest capacity before I graduated. Or I, you know, I'm not going to really be kingdom living until I get married or, or fill in the blank for any other kind of life event that we think, if I just get that, then I'll know that I'm following Christ. And Jesus destroys that kingdom of self-fulfillment by letting us know where our priorities should be. And they're this, on the kingdom and his righteousness, not doing the world's things. So questions for us, check our heart. Do we have things that we want to get done and have perfect before we let Jesus control our life? I don't know what that is for all of us in here, but I know for me so often it's like, you know, if I just move here, I just get this job, then I'll finally be building this kingdom. But if you, if you look, Jesus right now is saying to you, follow me, let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus doesn't have a super impre- like, impressed view of humanity. He literally tells, let the dead people bury the dead people. <laughs> Let the people who are concerned about the things that ultimately go away and fade away, let them worry about that. You're following me. We have to answer these kinds of questions to know that if in our life our heart's allegiance is actually to Christ. We have to know. Do we have things we have to get done? Are we moving too slow to give ourselves to the Lord? Or maybe we're moving too fast like the scribe and think that Jesus somehow needs us because we have things together. And a quick reminder of the heart check here. It's unfortunate, but some of us could already be turning this message off because it's easier just to say, well, faith alone, grace alone. I know that I fail in these ways, but Jesus saved. And listen, that is true. But a grace that saves is a grace that changes. And when God speaks to you through these types of passages, it's not healthy, I don't think, to just see these and think, okay, I'm really glad, you know, I don't have to worry about these commands. You know, that's law. And, and you're right, we don't obey to get favor with God, but once we've been given this favor in Christ, we, we live a life that looks different. We live a life that looks like we're not concerned about what dead people worry about. We live a life that is completely humbled because the Son of Man chose us to be in his kingdom not because he needed us, but because he loved us. And that's where we take a quick break in this story. We see two disciples. Well, I don't know if they end up following him. We don't actually know. It might be safe to assume they don't completely follow Christ by the end of this. But this is all right before Jesus tells disciples, his, his followers, his 12, to get on the boat. And I don't think that paragraphs were just kind of thrown together unintentionally in the Bible. I think the Lord inspired every sentence and every sequence. So there's something about these two things that we need to know before we're excited that Jesus rebukes the wind, (laughs) right? We're not just going to get excited that Jesus changes weather. There's something that we need to know about Jesus in this that will help us forsake comfort and self-love 
and our own hopes and dreams. It's something in us that we need to forsake so that we live a life where Jesus clearly and evidently in our life calls the shots. And I I hate this in myself because it's so easy living in such privilege like I do to be lulled to sleep by the enemy thinking that, well, I don't, you know, I'm not letting the the dead, I'm not worried about the dead and, and getting my inheritance. Like I say my prayers and I I act okay, and I'm not, you know, I'm humble, right? I know that I'm not that great. I don't think that Jesus needs me. But could we just be being lulled to sleep, right? And especially as we're getting ready to make a move as a church, hopefully, Lord willing, that the voting um, goes okay, and we're going into this fall, and and everybody's talking about, you know, the 186 in the spring, what's going to happen in the fall? Do we have to go to seven services on Sunday? And and we're we're wondering, but, but we could get obsessed with all of that, and forget that we serve the Son of Man who removes himself from those crowds and looks at us personally and says, where does your heart align? Where do we, who do we serve? Who do we love? How often do we pray for our coworkers before we go in? Your classmates, do we have a fight to kill sin and sacrifice time to help others? Or do we just spend time being excited about all the sins, like the actually bad sins that we don't commit? It's probably not a life wrung out for the kingdom if you just go three weeks without killing somebody, right? Something to think about. It's, it's just presses on me. I'm so good at making everybody think that I follow Jesus with my whole life. When in reality, a lot of times my heart just loves myself and I love the crowd and I love the, the hype. We don't have to feel guilty for having nice things, but we should feel the sting of our life not counting every day for the kingdom. The Lord really numbers our days and gives us a certain amount. How do we fight this routine, this easy kind of Christianity that we so often fall into? With that being said, let's look at this next passage, verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, that's where we end. I'm not trying to surprise you. We end with people who are close to Jesus being marveled by what he had done. I'm going to walk through these verses slowly to make sure we kind of squeeze everything out of this so that we can see something about our hearts. So if you look already in the beginning of this paragraph at verse 23. So when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. Quick note, this is how it works. When you are already in Christ, he says something and we do it. In verse 24, directly after you obey, these disciples obeyed Jesus. Look at this. There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. If we read past this quickly, we'll miss that sometimes obeying Jesus means that bad things happen to you often heard a quote that I know what they mean, but it's, if you take it literally, it's kind of scary. You maybe have heard this before, but 
The safest place to be is in the will of God. I don't know if you've heard that. I've heard that before. And I, I, you know, if they mean that you're eternally safe forever in the Father and with him forever, then I like that quote. But I think often it's used as kind of a pacifier on suffering, right? Like, the safest place to be is the will of God. I would love to tell the disciples this when the storm was coming, right? Like, don't worry, you obey Jesus. This is really safe. And even though he's asleep, I know it's fine. But, like, you're safe. They may, you may not be safe. And if we are a church that cares about the problems that are in our city and we're going to go tackle addiction head on and we're going to look at this brokenness and the poverty and the, the, you know, the headlines of we're the worst place to live ever and we're going to go into Huntington, you've got to know and I've got to know and I'm scared of this sometimes, but it might not be the safest place to be. This ragtag group of men were actually good at just one thing, and that's fishing. And they're, boat, and they're, they're good at boating, I would assume. But even in this, we see that even the things that we're good at, Jesus is still better. And even in our competence, we can still be in way over our heads when it comes to kingdom building, because we have to need him. The boat was being swamped by the sea, getting overwhelming and terrifying. And then we see the Son of Man, Teacher Lord, asleep. Now, probably in the moment, we're not too thrilled about that, right? Like we've seen miracles of this man, and then we are in a scary, overwhelming, waves over the side of the boat situation, this suffering, and how is this supposed to be comforting? Jesus is asleep. If we know anything about our Lord, I'm not, I don't think the answer is that he just doesn't care, or that he got bored during your suffering. He wasn't bored here. He wasn't, I mean, in his humanity, there could have been some just physical tiredness, which, which that's fine, but I think there's, there's something more than just being excited that the Son of Man really put on flesh. There's something here, and I think it shows Jesus' complete rest with the Father's will, even in the midst of storms. As we should be when we hit life's storms. Now, it's easy to kind of take a turn and just talk about all the different types of storms that can happen in life and, and get cliche really quickly. But I, I just want to leave it at that, that even in suffering, even in overwhelming circumstances, there's a Savior that slept on them. And not sleeping because he got bored with you. Sleeping because he's showing you what kind of rest and peace you can be invited in if you're a part of his kingdom. If you really forsake self-love, if you really forsake loving money or the movement or momentum, there's a peace that really does pass all understanding. Because I, for me personally, it's the suffering in my life or just the tension or relational conflict or whatever it is that really reveals my heart. I see how much I love myself whenever I suffer because I just don't deserve it. And then I get anxiety and then I get fear and then I need a sleeping savior to remind me that he trusts the Father in my place so that I'm granted that in him. This should be especially comforting now that we know what following Jesus and a full devotion to him looks like. We know that it'll be costly. It means following a savior that was homeless. It means following a savior that suffered and died. And if we press into this life saying, God, like, show me where I have allegiance to myself. Show me where I have allegiance to 
my getting my life together, you're going to face times where the circumstances seem overwhelming. And maybe, I don't know what all kind of stories come in here, maybe right now you're going through something that is just completely overwhelming. We need faith, we need hope, we need trust, and we need peace in him. Let's look how the disciples respond. So Jesus is asleep, they go wake him up, and he say this, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, they're devastated. They weren't actually dead here, but in their just fear, they're saying we're perishing. And I think we, we all get that, right? It just feels like either, it feels like we are dying or just feels like we'd rather just not be here whenever storms get big and all of a sudden the, the waves are crashing in and, and, and we feel like God's indifferent because he's so at peace and in us we don't feel any of that peace. And it's like, what is God doing when our life has become overcome? But I want you to see something so powerful that if we read it quick, we'll miss the whole thing. This is actually a prayer. It's a prayer. So first of all, pray in life's storms. But also I want you to see that in verse 26, we see that this prayer actually had a weak faith behind it. How do I know that? Because Jesus looks at them and says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? There's something about lacking faith that will cause you in pressing circumstances to question God. It'll cause you in um, pressing circumstances to devastating fear if you're not certain that there's a peace that is actually out there for you. But even more beautiful than that, especially for those of us that are suffering right now, going through something, Jesus still responds to the weak faith prayer. Don't you love that? Like, you don't have to get your faith all the way up and then show you have, you know, there's, it's not a, a work. It's not a, a labor to trust in Jesus. It's a very passive thing. It's just, I have nothing else and I have to trust you. And even though Jesus looks at them and says, why are you afraid? You have little faith. He still gets up and rebukes the wind. And he rebukes the sea. He still answers the prayer, and he still cares, and he still loves his disciples, even if they have little faith. But it doesn't mean he won't rebuke us. I think even when we hear that, a trick of the enemy could be, okay, well, it doesn't really matter if I weak faith. And eternally, it doesn't. You need a Christ-honoring faith, no matter how weak it might be. It's not the power of the faith. It's the object of it. But in the risks of life, and the risks of a church, and in our suffering, it's important to not be okay with reluctant faith. We're still called to something bigger. We're still called to be a people that look at storms and say, I'm okay. We're called to be a people that can just sleep when things are terrible. Jesus, once again, is in charge. He rebukes the wind and the wind obeys. Jesus destroys the kingdom of fear too. He'll attack self-love because he knows that's only going to make you worse and more afraid in fear. He'll attack your fear of or your allegiance to the kingdom of money and getting your life together because he knows that your life will never be together and you'll only be more afraid. And then he looks at this pressing circumstance where it looks like the disciples are in such a bad condition that they'll even say we're perishing. He gets up and even though they're fake, your faith is weak. He says, calm down, storm. And then the man, the men, marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? 
Marvel is appropriate here. (laughs) You watch a man wake up from a nap and tell the weather to stop, and it does. That's incredible. Dare I say, marvelous. But we can't just leave this miracle narrative as just that and be excited that Jesus can calm storms. We have to fall in love with the miracle worker. And this is the part of the text that gets me. Um, Cards on the table, my biggest failure as a follower of Christ is worry. Worry has captured my heart more than any other. And it's definitely when things get tense and usually not even that bad, things that reveal that I just don't trust God very much. (laughs) One story in particular, it was... I guess four years ago now, me and my friends, we used to, every year in the beginning of May, we would go to Cedar Point. Have you ever been there? It's a nice place, roller coaster capital of the world. And every single time we got there, we would go eat at TGI Fridays. TGI Fridays is not that good, but it ended up being a tradition because every time we had the same server. It was so weird. But there was a moment, and Jacob's here today, so that's good. I was sitting beside Jacob Wolf, and I'd already finished my burger and fries, and I noticed that on his plate, he had some fries left, and it had been about 20 minutes or so, and I hadn't seen Jacob really eat anything, and he had a sauce that I wanted to try, so I grabbed a fry, dipped it in, and I ate it. You guys, where is he going with this, right? And, and Jacob looks at me, and he says, you are so selfish with your food. Now, that's okay to laugh, but what's not funny I spent that whole night thinking, literally, could see it. One day you're going to be a dad, Dustin. One day you're going to be hungry too, but you're not going to give that fry to your kid. Now, it sounds funny, but this is, if you're a worrier, you know. And I'd like to say that I repented in that and that I gave my heart to God and I stopped loving myself and stopped loving comfort, but that same 20-year-old Dustin that couldn't trust God to provide for his family one day, just wrecked by a friend calling me out for eating a fry, revealed something so wicked in my heart. It's too easy to reduce worry and anxiety and fear to a personality trait. It's an excuse. It's sin. It's not trusting God. That's me so much. I need a Savior that can calm a storm, but even more, I need a Savior that sleeps and invites me into that trust. Storms might not go away, but if the trust of Christ is granted to us in his, in his righteousness because of the cross. We can, we can stare that storm. We can stare that cold fry with chipotle barbecue sauce in the face. We can say, I still trust him. It's a quick recap here before we get to the gospel and celebrate singing as a church family. Jesus is better than all other kingdoms. Following any other kingdom, especially when a storm comes, is going to show you how unfulfilling and terrifying it can really be. Because if you're completely devoted to the kingdom of self-love, you're going to think you don't deserve the suffering rather than embracing it and realizing God's molding you. Or if you devote yourself to the kingdom of control and getting your life together, especially when your life isn't together, everything will fall apart. You're going to say, I'm perishing, and you're going to wonder why Jesus is asleep. Following him does mean considering his mission and life and his bride and 
and his death and resurrection more valuable than comfort and money and self and fear and all of our hopes and dreams. And just like he commands the winds to stop, he looks at us, Christians in here, called and collected to be in the body of Christ in this local attic of a school supply shop. And he says, trust me, follow me. I'm not trying to create a people here that show the world there's hope when storms come. But if you don't know the Lord in here, you need hope. He doesn't command you to do things. He commands you to trust him. It's important to, rem- it's important to remember this anytime we're studying miracles, especially familiar ones, that the point of the miracle is not just a miracle. The point of the miracle is to point to the cross and empty grave. All of his miracles point us here because the ultimate storm in your life is, is our sin problem. It's, it's every time I don't trust. It's every time that one pressing circumstance spirals me out and I don't even, don't even talk like I know a God who's sovereign. And just like nature is wild and uncontrollable at times, groaning with the desire for redemption, your rebellious, our rebellious heart against God, we know there's something more. And on the cross and rising again, Jesus, this is, the, this is the point. He takes the storm of God's wrath on himself. And when he rises again, and by faith, what he gives us is calmness. And it looks like righteousness and forgiveness. To all who will believe and forsake all other kingdoms and follow him. And it doesn't mean, we have to make this clear, it doesn't mean you're going to have calm days the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that we're going to have automatic peace every time life storms come. But it does mean that whenever we pick up our cross and get in the boat and embrace the tension, we have a Savior that sleeps and invites you in that rest so that we can show a world that we're trying to reach that there's hope. I, um, before I joined staff here, I worked at an addiction clinic um, right down the road. And there was this one client in particular, and I was in a secular environment, so I couldn't share any hope about a sleeping and dying and resurrecting Savior. And he's sharing me all of this abuse, and he's so anxious. He hasn't looked me in the eyes, and I've been seeing him forever. He still can't look at me, and, and he just kind of, he's balled up, and he's been an addict since he was like 11. And he grew up in church, and he's, he's looking, and he, he looks up at me, and he says, I am terrified of going to hell. Unfortunately, because of clinical ethics, I'm not allowed to walk with this guy, but I can only imagine what it's going to look like whenever people just like him fill our congregation and we make a stand and say, we're here to help Huntington. We're going to, that means helping Huntington. It means we're going to attack the biggest problem here. The gospel is not too small, and the hope is not too small to even reach out to those people that their storm looks way worse than what we go through. But if we don't learn to trust God in Hours, they're not going to believe our hope. The last verse, just the first part, verse 28. I don't even have this on the board, but we've got to see this. It just says, and when he came to the other side. I point this out because the disciples get to the other side of the storm. <laughs> I think that's important to know. But... 
here's even more glorious. If we're going to not just look at this as a miracle story, but instead marvel at the gospel, the most important other side is actually the other side of eternity when all storms are completely over. Revelation 21, I love this, that once Jesus is winning and they're celebrating what that's going to look like, it literally says this, there will be no more sea. (laughs) A lot of times in the Bible, at least in the narrative, it looks like that water and sea and storms kind of represent God's wrath, and, and one day there will be no more sea. No more worry, no more tension, no more allegiances to other kingdoms. All of those kingdoms will be a footstool and we'll celebrate in a land where there is no wrath. The Bible tells us that on the other side of eternity, every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess. And the question for us is, even if we're already saved, are we going to decide today, not let this be routine, but instead we'll say, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to let the dead bury their own dead. I'm going to let the foxes have their holes And I'm going to follow the Son of Man, even if it means suffering, even if it means tough things, because he sleeps on the storms. Jesus is Lord of the wind and the sea. The question for us, and as we get ready to sing and the band comes back up and we celebrate this, just like he's the the Lord, the wind and the storm and the sea, is he the Lord of our life? And don't just say yes and call him teacher. Ask yourself and repent and love him. And if you don't know him, believe that he took your wrath and resurrected so that we might have peace from his wrath, but also peace in hard times. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, pray right now that you would help our church sing. (laughs) That... In our storms, maybe the ones we just got out of or the ones that we're going through or the ones that are coming, that we would love the fact that you trusted the Father in our place and trusted him to death so that we might die to ourselves and our kingdoms and know you. Father, humble us right now and help us to sing like men and sing like women who know that there's hope and know that you died and rose again to give us that. In your name I pray. Amen.